0: how can a person be made right before the holy God? We know from Scripture that God is storing up His wrath for the day of judgment against all those who oppose Him. And we are among those who oppose Him in our natural sinful condition. So what are we to do? How can we have a right standing before God when we are clearly guilty? And this is the answer that the Apostle Paul wants to explore in his letter to the Romans. Let me invite you to turn there because this morning I want to begin a 41-part study uh, through this book of Romans with you. How can a person who is clearly guilty be made right before God without God being unjust? That's really a big question that we have to answer if we're going to understand the Gospel we're going to understand how to be right with God. And so, in order to introduce this uh, letter, I'd like to read what is, I think, at the center of Paul's argument, which is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So let me read that for us this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is the Word of God. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul is going to help us to see how it is that we guilty sinners can be made right before the holy God. Now, we know that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans because he begins the letter by stating his name. This is how they would do it in the ancient Near East. They would put their name and the recipient's name in the opening of the letter. So that's what he does here in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And then he says who he wrote it to. He he tells us who he writes it to in verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. So Paul is the author, and he wrote this from Corinth on his Third missionary journey. So he's kind of at the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, If you're thinking about it in terms of Acts, it's around the year AD 56. And he had been a believer now for 20 plus years and had been in ministry, ministering to churches, talking about doctrine, uh, rooting out all the error in in the churches. He had experienced a great deal of grief and trouble and uh, personal conflict and he had also matured significantly in his ability to become a a missionary church planner for the sake of God. And so he's writing at that time, later on in his life, um, here from Corinth to the church at Rome. And we know it's the church at Rome because of verse 7, as I just showed you. This city of Rome at that time was uh, the capital of the empire, the, the Roman Empire, and the largest city largest known city in the world to that time was an approximate um, population of a half a million to one million people. Each year, the Passover required that the Jews would come back to Jerusalem. So, during the time of Passover, the city was filled. This is during during the time of Christ, if you think back to that time. The city was filled at that time of the death of Christ. So, they all knew what happened to Christ. He was this teacher, this rabbi who would teach and he taught with authority and he would heal people. Everybody knew about him. And then they find out that the, the Romans and really the Jewish religious leaders killed Jesus. And so after Jesus died and then after he was risen from the dead, the town was still in an uproar. All these people from not just the people who lived in Jerusalem, but all scattered from all over the earth who had come back to Jerusalem for this Passover. There's still an uproar. What's happened? What's happened to this Jesus? What's going on with our city? About seven weeks after the Jewish Passover is the celebration of Pentecost. It was the time that God chose in Acts chapter 2 to send His Holy Spirit on the believers in a powerful way and it resulted in the salvation of thousands of Jews. And if you remember when the the Holy Spirit came on them initially with fire, uh, the, the believers were able to speak in tongues. They were actually able to speak the other languages of these people who had traveled from from thousands of, or hundreds of miles away probably and and were used to speaking other languages in addition to Aramaic and so these believers are able to speak their languages. well some of these believers are from the city of Rome and and although many of these dispersed Jews who had come to the city of Jerusalem were not going to live there long term, uh, many of those who came actually were saved, right that's what happens after Pentecost is that Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2 and thousands of people are saved and added to the church. And then after that, it says that thousands were added every day. So there are many people coming to to faith in Jesus Christ after this initial um, gifting of the Holy Spirit. And so after they come to Christ, what's going to happen to these who don't live in Jerusalem? Well, they're not going to come and set down their roots here in Jerusalem. They've got a family back home or... They've got all their property and things back in Rome, and so they have to go back. And that's, in fact, what happens. These Jews who have just newly been saved and have a short period of time to learn about the truth of the gospel and about church life and so on, they head back to their home in Rome and apparently establish a church without the aid or the assistance of an apostle. And the church in Rome had an immediate impact. We know by the way that, that Paul didn't have an impact or at least an initial um he didn't establish Rome from the beginning because of verses 8 through 15 in chapter 1. He talks to them like he wants to come and add something to what they already have. He wants to he's not building on a brand new foundation for them. They've already been established as a church. He simply wants to to add what is lacking in their faith. And so this church establishes is established through the through these fellow believers who, who have been saved through the Gospel that Peter preached in Acts 2. They go back to Rome, establish a church, and it makes an immediate impact within the, the, the city of Rome and in the nation of, of the Roman Empire. Because within the first 10 or 15 years of, it, of its existence, we know from history that the, empire, the emperor at that time, Claudius, he had a real problem with these Jews that were starting problems effectively by teaching this Christ that he talked about. And so what he did, the Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome in A.D. 49. He said, you're, you're gone. You, you can't live with us anymore. He sent all the Jews out. And so the synagogues are all empty, which is probably where they started having their first services and so on. And the church continued on without the Jews. Uh, probably the Gentiles who were saved as a result of the Jews coming back. So you have the Jews getting saved in Jerusalem and then going back to their hometown, Rome, establishing a church and likely reaching some of the Romans, right? Some of the Gentile Romans. Well, the Jews are all expelled, but now who do you have left in the church? You still have the Romans. And they're there for several years by themselves without the help of any of the Jews. And then when Nero becomes emperor in the 50s, he changes the law that... No longer are Jews expelled from Rome. They can come back, and so the Jews do. And when they return, the Jews and Gentiles now come back into a congregation together and apparently have some issues with, with, um, with what is going on. Not anything significant because Paul's not, uh, he's not condemning them here in this letter, but he does want to talk about some of the, the differences between Jew and Gentiles, and he wants to show them that both are one in Christ. That there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. He wants to also show how the gospel relates to the Gentiles and to the Jews with regard to the Old Testament. So that's kind of the 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 background here behind this letter. Paul is writing from Corinth to a church that's already established but isn't fully mature, we could say. And so Paul writes this as a, 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 a for two primary purposes. One. He wants to first tell them that He wants to come to them. He, he plans to come and visit them. That, that, there was, uh, that, that He wanted to make sure that they knew. Uh, let me see. I didn't write down the verse here, but I think I can find it quick. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. And then verse 15, So for my part, I am, uh, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And I think he says in another place that long term, I think it's maybe in chapter 15, I want to make it to Spain. And so on my way to Spain, I'm planning to stop by and, and spend some time with you because I want to I want to see you. I want to encourage you. And I want to be encouraged by you. We'll talk about that next time uh, in two weeks in verses 8 through 15. So he wants to impart spiritual strength to them. That's the first reason that he writes this letter. The second reason is that he wanted to know he wanted to, them to understand the glory of the Gospel. And that's really the primary purpose for this letter. He wants them to understand the glory of the Gospel. That's why this this message is about the Gospel. We'll see this when we get to verse 1 here in just a few minutes after we finish this introductory material. That that it is the Gospel of God. It's the Gospel, verse 16, that is the power of God. It is this Gospel that you need to understand, believers. And not just... Be, you know so you can tell other people about it it's just it's for you personally you need to know the gospel the main point of Paul's writing is to talk to them about the the gospel and there are two main parts to this letter in chapters 1 through 11 Paul writes about the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us into a right relationship with God so we could think of it more as a doctrinal section that's typically how Paul and the other uh, letter writers tend to to uh, to set up their writings. They they start out with doctrine and then they move to practical. They start out with the teaching, the the truth of God, and then they move to what does this mean in our lives. We can't do it reverse. We can't just say, okay, here's how you do this, these things, and and then like, well, why why do we do these things? What would motivate me to do these things? Well, you know, on what basis? And so what what tends to happen is Paul. And other writers, they start with the doctrinal, and that's what he does here. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into a right relationship with God. That's what he wants to prove in chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 16, you have that turning point that I've mentioned on on other occasions. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body. So there, there he moves from the doctrinal. Now that you understand the gospel, now I want you to show you, I want to show you what that means for your life. You need to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, and here's what it looks like. And he's going to talk about that in several ways. So the gospel in verses twenty in verses twelve through I'm sorry. Chapters twelve through sixteen. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to give our lives in service to him. So it brings us into a right relationship, chapters one through eleven, and then it empowers us to serve him, chapters twelve through sixteen. The word that Paul uses to describe this right standing that we've been talking about is the word justification. Now, I try not to use too many theological terms. Maybe you think well, you're not doing a very good job because you use way too many. But okay, I, try not to, to, I try to simplify as much as I can. Um, but justification is a word that you need to know because it's the word that's in the Bible. In fact, within this letter to the Romans, the word justified or justifies or justification is used 17 times. And the word justified doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to be declared as righteous. Okay, And we need to understand that distinction because God didn't make you righteous when you came to Christ. That act of justification, of declaring you righteous, He didn't automatically change you. Right? That is finally change you. He didn't fully remove sin from you. He removed the power of sin from you. He removed the penalty of sin, but He didn't remove the presence of sin, did He? Does anyone else besides me struggle with sin? Here? Okay, a couple of people raised their hands. Everybody else are a bunch of liars. Right, you didn't know that I was asking a real question. Okay, um, um, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. Okay, so we, we all are sinners. We still are sinners after we have come to Christ, right? So, So that means that That act of justification, are are we being justified? Well, we're actually being sanctified, but we're not being justified. This justification happens at one time where God says, like in a courtroom, you are declared to be righteous. I see you as righteous, even though right now we're not. And we will be one day when we get to glory. So, what Paul wants to show here is that there are only two options for how a person can be justified by God. That is from a a doctrinal perspective. There are only two options. Either a person can be justified by works or a person can believe that he can be justified by works or he can be justified by faith. There's only two options. And he wants to show that that justification by works is not possible. And that's what he argues, in fact, in chapters one through three, that no one can be justified by works. Maybe you remember some of the ways that he states it. By by the works of the law, no flesh or no man will be justified. That's because, well, let's look at chapter 3, verse 10. I'll look at some of these verses just to show you. I'm kind of trying to show you here an overview of what Paul's doing in the entire book and then we'll briefly take some time at the end. <coughs> Excuse me. Getting choked up <coughs> a little bit there. Um, briefly take some time at the end to uh, look at the first seven verses and what Paul does to introduce his letter. So here we're in the the introductory part of the the sermon. So chapter 3, verse 10, here's why we can't be justified by works. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We can keep going, but we understand the point. He makes it very emphatic. He doesn't say that most people are not righteous. He's saying there's not even one person who can meet up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, if someone argues that a person can be justified by the law, they're wrong because no one can be justified by the law. And the reason for that is that we are all sinners. And so, because we cannot be justified by works, we need what? We need an alien payment to pay for our sins. And we need an alien righteousness. Not alien like Martian, but one outside of us to come and be applied to our account, and that's what happens. Look at here's kind of the, the really the central feature of this letter, verse twenty one, verses twenty one to twenty six. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So if the law doesn't work, then we need something else. Verse twenty two, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all ascend and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation and as a satisfaction of God's wrath in the blood of Jesus through faith. Okay, so that's the other option. Not justified by works, but justified by faith. And you see that in this section. The end of verse 25 says, this was to demonstrate His, God's, righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of, notice, the one who has faith in Jesus. No amount of good works will allow us to stand before a holy God and be justified. No amount of works. And so we need something else. And this is the heart of the Gospel verses 21 to 26, that Jesus came and is our redemption and that everyone who has faith in Jesus will be justified. you Remember what I said justified is? It is to be declared as righteous. That's us when we come to God in faith, uh, by faith in Jesus. So justification before God comes by faith. Turn back to chapter 1 and I'll show you this again in a verse that I read at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 17. For in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by... Not works. The righteous man, the one who is righteous, the one who's counted as righteous, lives by faith. That's us. That's the heart of the Gospel, that God is calling us to, to live by faith. That's justification. Paul wants them to see that. You can have a right standing before God. You need to understand where that right standing comes from and then, chapters 12-16, to 16, how that motivates you to give yourselves as a living sacrifice. Right? Why else would we want to do something like that? Why would we lay ourselves down and just, hey, do whatever you want to me or with me? Because we know that what we've been saved from. We know who our master is. We know what, what great cost it was to our Father and to His Son for us to, to come to God, to come to a right standing. So the gospel brings us into a right relationship with God, chapters 12 through, or chapters one through 11. He's going to argue that, that we are justified not by works, chapters one to three, and then that we are justified by faith, chapters three through eight. And then he's going to show in chapters uh, nine through eleven that the gospel does not eliminate Israel's place in God's plan for the future. That is, that God. So, so if God justifies just anybody, if He's going to justify Jew and a Gentile, you know, there's no distinction, Jew or Greek, barbarian, doesn't matter. Then where's Israel in all this? Does God still have a plan for Israel and? The answer is in twelve chapters, 12, chapters 9 through 11. I'm mixing my numbers up pretty badly this morning. Um, chapters 9 through 11. God does not eliminate Israel from His plan. They are very much a part of His plan. And His gifting and calling are are irrevocable. So then in chapters 12 through 16, as I mentioned, He shows us that we must give our lives in service to Him. We're going to see that in several ways, that we give our lives in service to Him with verbal praise uh there's multiple doxologies where paul just stops and says oh the greatness of god and and how marvelous are his works the gospel also empowers us to serve him with individual devotion through our spiritual gifts uh to our authorities including civil authorities and then also empowers us to serve him with corporate in a corporate way that is in chapters 14 through 16 all right so there's the introduction now let's get into the the sermon that we want to tackle and you're thinking, We're almost done. How can you just be getting started? That was a big introduction big porch, small house. Bad thing my seminary professor used to say when you're preaching, the, the the introduction is the porch and the the body of the sermon is the house and it's not a good thing to have a bigger porch than your house. Okay, but today we are and I hope he he um he forgives me. All right, verses one through seven is what we want to look at. This morning. So let me just read these verses for us, and then we'll, I'll make a few comments on them. Verse 1, Chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins by giving his credentials why they should listen to him in the beginning of verse one. And then he talks about the gospel of God in his introduction before he actually talks about them as the recipients. So first, Paul's credentials. Paul sees himself, notice, as a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Paul calls himself, another word for bondservant is simply slave. That word doesn't translate very well in our day because it has bad connotation. But, but it's not a, a term that we would normally like to hear connected to our name, is it? I am a slave of Ford Motor Company, or I am a slave of Walmart, or wherever. Fill in the blank for your, the place that you work. But but Paul loves that term when it refers to notice a slave of Christ. When it comes to being a, a slave of Christ, a bond servant, it's actually a great privilege. I mean, it's one thing to find satisfaction as a servant. For a master who is not well known and who can do very little for us. But it's another thing to serve a king, to serve someone of great wealth and great stature. And we have that privilege, like the Apostle Paul, as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And so he calls himself that. He also gives his credentials next as he refers to himself as an apostle, called as an apostle. He wants the believers in Rome to know that what I'm about to say to you is not just humanly originated. I didn't come up with all of these things, but I, I am appointed by God. I didn't determine to be an apostle. God appointed me to be an apostle. And so what I'm going to tell you is true. It's from God. And so he, after giving his credentials, he focuses on what he's going to focus on really for the, the rest of the letter, which is the Gospel of God. And that's where he turns at the end of verse 1. Set apart for the Gospel of God. Not only does the gospel come from God, but, but Paul sees himself as set apart for this gospel. Notice verse 14. He has, he, he has this sense that he, he needs to get the gospel out. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. Paul says, I have a task to proclaim. He calls himself in another epistle. I am the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and so I have a responsibility for this gospel. Not only does it call me, but God has called me to call other people with it. The gospel comes from God. second thing that we see about the gospel in this opening part of his letter is that the gospel is trustworthy. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not a new or made-up religion. By a group of men who are looking to gain a following, to to grow in popularity. This is a clearly established truth that God has determined and it is affirmed in the Old Testament. That is, the Old Testament pointed to what we believe. And this highlights the trustworthiness of the gospel. The third thing that we see about the gospel is that the gospel is about Jesus, verses 3 and 4. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel comes from God. The gospel is trustworthy. And then the gospel is about Jesus. And here you have a great picture in verses 3 and 4 of Jesus Christ as both human and divine. Notice, first, as human. Concerning His Son, that is God's Son, who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God. So in verse 3, you have Him as the Son of David. A, a born in human flesh, a human just like us. The humanity of Christ is undeniable for us as Christians. In other words, you cannot be saved if you don't believe that Jesus became a man. You cannot be saved. Listen to 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. John makes very stark contrast when he speaks. Very black and white. He just says, listen, if you hear that someone is speaking, and they don't claim that Jesus is a man then he's not from God. He's from, he, he's, he has the spirit of Antichrist. But if you hear someone speaking that Jesus came in the flesh, that's a good indication that he's from God. And we cannot deny that Jesus was fully human. He had to be human in order that he could experience the sufferings and the temptations and so that he could die. Because God as spirit cannot die. But Jesus is not just human. He is also divine. He is deity. He is God. Notice verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness? Jesus Christ our Lord. You want proof that that Jesus Christ is from God, that He is God, that all He said was true? Then you don't have to look any farther than the empty tomb. That was God's clear mark of evidence that Jesus is His Son. That He is alive. And it happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. Actually, this idea here of the, the um, according to the Spirit of holiness, I think, doesn't have to do so much with the resurrection, but more of what follows the resurrection. That is, you want proof that Jesus is the Son of God, then look at what the Spirit's doing today in the lives of believers. The, f- the fact that the Holy Spirit is presently sanctifying you and me and countless other believers is evidence that Jesus is alive and that His sacrifice was effective in saving and transforming us. If the Holy Spirit, if there is any change happening in you toward godliness, it cannot come apart from the Holy Spirit and if the Holy Spirit is working in that powerful way, following the, 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 the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then He is the Son of God. Paul calls Him Lord at the end of verse 4. By virtue of His satisf- satisfactory atonement and His conquering resurrection, He now reigns as Master of all. And Paul, again, is happy to call himself his servant. He's happy to say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ because He is the Master of all. So the Gospel comes from God. The Gospel is trustworthy. The Gospel is about Jesus. And then number four, the Gospel demands faith. The Gospel demands faith. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. So Paul's saying, I have received grace and apostleship so that I can see obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. I want to reach out to the Gentiles in that way. He sees himself as a recipient of God's grace and being allowed to be an apostle. But he also knows that that gift of being an apostle is not something he just puts up on a shelf and leaves there. It's something that he uses. It's like a tool. He's a steward now of that apostleship. And he must use that gift of apostleship for the sake of bringing others to faith in Christ. And notice the intended result there in verse 5. The middle of the verse says, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. It's to bring about obedience of faith. Now, what is this obedience of faith? It could be that it's to bring about faith that results in obedience. The obedience that produces faith. Maybe that's what he's saying. And that is true that Faith does produce obedience. If there are no works, then faith is dead. But that's not what Paul is saying here, I don't think. I think this phrase, of faith, serves as an appositional phrase to obedience. That is, he's saying the same thing. That's what an apposition is. The obedience which is faith. That's the idea. So look at the text again. To bring about the obedience which is faith among the Gentiles, among all the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean he's calling the Gentiles to work for their salvation, that they need to start obeying in order that they can get faith. That's not the idea. But to believe is the same thing as to obey. To obey is the same thing as to believe. Remember, it's not, this isn't a work. This is actually a response to the gospel call. That is, when we respond to the gospel call in obedience, we have responded in faith and we have been justified. Because before we came to Christ, remember what we are called? Ephesians 2.2, 2, Paul says, you were sons of, not unbelief, sons of what? Disobedience. That's what we were. It's the same thing. Sons of disobedience and sons of unbelief is the same thing. Consider John 3.36 to see this connection that obedience here is faith. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So there's the idea of faith. Believing. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not, and we would expect, believe. But instead he says, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. So do you see how both of those are the same thing effectively? That a person who is lost and condemned and who will not turn to Christ is a person who is not only in unbelief, but also in disobedience. He has been called to turn in faith to Jesus and he has denied Him. He's saying, no, I I will go my own way. Believing in the Son is equivalent to obeying the Son. Listen to Hebrews 3.18 to just further confirm this. And to whom did He swear that they should not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were not able to enter the rest because of unbelief. So who, who couldn't enter the rest? It was the disobedience. The very next line, those who were un- unbelieving. Disobedience is the same thing as unbelief. And so that's what he's saying he, he, in, in the converse way. He's actually saying, I'm trying to call all people to obedience to the gospel, to belief in the gospel, to the obedience which is faith. The gospel demands Faith. It demands that we obey the gospel call. And then finally, number five, the gospel applies to all. Verse six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Really, the end of verse five shows it as well among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So it's not just for the Jews. The Jews, you had a special part in God's program at the beginning, and so it's only for you, and the Gentiles, too bad for you. But, no, it's, it's for the Gentiles as well. It's for all people. It's for all who are called. It's all who will put their faith in Jesus. And that call also teaches us that, that it's God that initiates the call. Notice verse 6, "...among whom you are the called." It's the God who's, who's voicing the Gospel to us. And that's why at the end of verse 5, it's God who gets the glory. It's for His name's sake. It's for God's glory that all this happens. So that when we come to God, there is no boasting. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's no boasting in what we've done. We come empty-handed, humble, humiliated, really, before God. And He gets all the glory. Because He's taken us who were objects of His wrath, His enemies, and He sacrificed He sacrificed His Son for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul gives his credentials, verse 1. Then he talks about the Gospel at the end of verse 1 through verse 6. And then he talks to his recipients or tells who his recipients are in verse 7. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called the saints. Paul describes the believers as beloved of God and saints. What a description for us who believe that we are loved by God. What a great epitaph that would make. Loved by God and a saint. That's what God calls all who come to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait until you die to see if the church will consider you to be a saint. Because the Bible teaches us that when you and I come to Christ, we are saints. The word saints is, is holy one. We are set apart for the purposes of God and therefore we should live that way. We are saints. There's no levels of Christianity in that, in that way. That is that, you know, you, you come to Christ and you're kind of immature. Yes, you may be, but you're a saint even as an immature believer. Okay, we don't have to wait till we get to this higher level of learning to become a saint. All who are called by God are saints. Our Holy ones set apart for His purpose. So, let me just try to summarize what Paul is saying here and what he's holding out for us as beautiful, and that is that the glory of God is at the center of God's plan. The glory of God is at the center of his plan. God is working to show his worth through the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only one that could affect a right standing for you before God. Because Jesus is fully divine, He is God, the second person of the Trinity. And only Jesus could perfectly meet all the demands of God. Do you realize just not, not just any human could die for your sins. Even the best of humans could not die for your sins save Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could meet all the demands that God had for perfect right, righteousness. He is fully divine. But He's also, verse 3, fully human. He came to this world in flesh. He took on flesh. Not Apparent flesh. Actual flesh. He came in as a baby, just like you and me, and experienced the same kind of growth and struggle and temptation that you and I face except that because He is God, He was able to live without sinning. And so when He died, He died as a sacrifice for your sin. He had to become human in order to die since He existed before that only as God. And in that Existence, he could not die. He had to become man in order to die. And the proof that Jesus' life and death met all of God's demands is that God raised Him from the dead. And that He now lives in heaven to the right of His Father at the seat of prominence. And the Spirit is now working in us to change us to be like Him. This is the Gospel. It is that Jesus died to take upon Himself the sins of the world so that all who will trust in Him as the only means of salvation will be redeemed by God, will be at peace with God. And friends, that offer of salvation from the wrath of God is also available for you if you have not accepted it. You can't come to God on the basis of your own works. You can't do enough good things to outweigh your bad. God will only accept perfect righteousness. And for us, that means the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah. And so you have to believe in Christ alone. You are called to believe. And as long as you disobey that call, you are in unbelief. If you have not done that, let me urge you to do it today. God is calling you to turn from your sins and to stop trying to build a ladder of your works to God. Come to God through the only means that He has provided Jesus Christ. Believe in Him today if you're still unsure about the Gospel and whether you need it. Would you study this book with our church over the next several months and come to know the glory of the Gospel of God about Jesus Christ? And then make a determination. It's not too late, as long as you have breath, to turn to the Lord and you will never regret it. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the Gospel that You have given to us and how it has been revealed in such a powerful way through the person of Jesus Christ and then through the apostles as they helped us understand what His life and death and resurrection mean for us. And Lord, now we live as recipients of that Gospel and proclaimers of that Gospel. So help us to be faithful to You. Help us understand the great beauty of this jewel that You have given to us and to never tire of its glory and how it highlights Your mercy in our lives. Lord, help us to come to grips again of the great beauty of our salvation through this study as we look into Your Word over the next several months. May You strengthen us, strengthen our resolve to serve You. Sometimes we... We lose sight of what's most important because we forget about what got us here. It wasn't us. It wasn't our effort. It was the the grace that has come through Jesus Christ. May that become more clear for us as we study this letter together. And Lord, may it not just result in happy feelings, but actually right living. May it change the way that we live and think about You. And, and how we respond to other people and how we treat other people and how we, how we uh, respond to the troubles that come our ways. We, we want to, to know You, Lord. So help us to do that in this study and, and to, to be able to live in a way that's worthy of our calling. We pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.